York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, wet side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the nuclear nightmare at the Soviet Union's Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station in Ukraine, a place officially named the V.I. Lenin Nuclear Power Station. It was the pride of the communist system until a fateful day, August 26, 1986, when reactor number four exploded. A name that few in the world could have placed has become synonymous with radioactive Armageddon. But communist propaganda, secrecy, shame, and misinformation long obscured the true story of the accident behind the Iron Curtain, leading to three decades of speculation and debate. Here with his Geiger counter to tally the true cost and causes is Adam Higginbotham, who brings us Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. Drawing on hundreds of hours of interviews conducted over the course of more than 10 years, as well as letters, unpublished memoirs, and documents from recently declassified archives, Adam Higginbotham has written a heck of a story. It's really compelling, and it brings the disaster to life through the eyes of men and women who witnessed it firsthand had to flee often, leaving everything behind, or who even lost their lives. The resulting book reads like a thriller, and it's more terrifying than the tale concocted by the Kremlin mythmakers, as well as being more informative about the ultimate demise of a world superpower. You've seen Adam Higginbotham's work in The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Wired, GQ, and Smithsonian. Find him online at adamhigginbotham.com or at Higginbotham and the letter A on Twitter. Okay, now that we've swallowed a couple of iodine pills and pulled on our radiation suits, let's join Adam Higginbotham as the clock strikes 12 for Midnight in Chernobyl. I'm joined on the line by Adam Higginbotham, who brings us Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Well, thank you. I'm, it's great to still be talking to people who have actually read the book and really liked it, I, I must admit. <laughs> and it's a strange thing to say, right? right? I said to my wife, she said, who are you interviewing today? And I said, well, that book about Chernobyl that you saw me reading. And she said, oh, well, that, that's heavy. 
And I said, that's strange because I don't think of it that way. Right. Because you focus on the human details, it seems like a thriller. Like I said in the intro, you can use the word that you enjoyed the story and following it and the things we learned from it than you might expect from a book that's on Chernobyl. Well, no, because my note to myself when I embarked on doing the book was that I wanted it to be like Arthur Haley's Chernobyl. Hmm. You know, I wanted it to be modeled on one of those disaster movie books from the early 70s. You've got this handful of characters. You've got the, you know, the alcoholic flight director. You've got the pilot with a terrible past. You've got the singing nun. It's great that you say that because that's exactly what I wanted it to be, was popular history that is completely accurate but reads like a crime thriller, basically. You accomplished it, definitely. It also helped, I'm sure, that you didn't have an axe grind in the sense of you weren't focusing on the fact that this is how horrible nuclear power is. You wanted to drive that home. I've seen some of your other things and read them, but you wanted to tell the story of this specific thing, and people can draw inferences, I guess, if they want. But you didn't stop for a page and a half and start to sermonize and tell us and dwell on that. I remember the last John Grisham book I read, I said, my gosh, every time he introduces a new character, they have to stop for two and a half pages to give you a monologue on the death penalty and their opinions of it. It just became so tiring by the third time. There's ways to do that if you want to do it without turning it into an Ayn Rand book, you know, where she has those 50-page monologues about her politics. You should keep people entertained, I think, and and keep their attention and not, not hit them over the head. I liked where you said that it's like the Titanic. It's a story about some hubris and technological faith and and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And also, I mean, I just think that the the events speak for themselves. And and I wanted to write, you know, a book I wanted to read. And whenever people start kind of haranguing the reader with whatever polemicized stand they've chosen to take, that always kind of detracts from the experience for me. Yeah, it takes you out of it, definitely. Yeah. This is a story that kicks right off with the human element. You write in that first line, Senior Lieutenant Alexander Logachev loved radiation the way other men loved their wives. So that line right there tells me as a reader that this is going to be a story of this worst nuclear disaster in human history, not just through the scientists' eyes, but also through human beings. And then I think of you as a writer, as the author, and I say, Boy, this guy had a heck of a challenge because they say that news is the first draft of history. Here are the Soviets suppressing so much about this event. They're ashamed of it. They want to keep it quiet. So this is really bold of you to decide, hey, I'm going to look into the human stories. I'm going to find that living record. And I'm going to make a story that does hold people's interest, that people can enjoy, even though it's about a disaster. And I will be able to find enough information, despite it being behind the former Iron Curtain, to tell that story. So how did you go about that? How did you start finding out all the information you knew you'd need and have to dig for to get this book written? Well, (laughs) I think you're investing me (laughs) at the outset of the project with a little more confidence than I actually had. You know, I hoped I'd be able to find these people. But as you say, you know, there are a lot of obstacles. But the truth is that there were accounts of the disaster written that were translated into English soon after the fall of the Soviet Union that were published in the early 90s that give you a good sense of the outline of the story that I tell in the book. The thing was that a lot of the named individuals are little more than the names on the page. So what I wanted to do when I set out researching the story in the first place, and, and, and that was a long time ago. You know, originally, 
I embarked on reporting a magazine story back in 2006 that was just to reconstruct the events of the night of the accident itself. So that part of what happened was probably the best documented. So then I went to find, you know, these individuals who were involved in the events directly surrounding the explosion. And those people you could, to some extent, you could find in the phone book. So, I mean, I had, you know, researchers and, and fixers in, in Russia and Ukraine who gave me an enormous amount of help. But a, a lot of the way of tracking these people down is, you, you know, you, like any reporter would, you knew their names and you had a rough idea of where they lived. So you could look them up in the phone book. And then once you'd met one or two individuals, then they would know other people and they would put you in touch with them. And that was particularly made particularly easy, relatively speaking, in, in Kiev and Moscow, because the way that people in the Soviet Union were housed was often with people they worked with. So you would find that, like, for instance, the science editor of Pravda, Vladimir Gubarev, you know, he lives in the same apartment building he lived in during the Soviet times. And all the other people who live in the building also worked at Pravda. So if you, so if you wanted to speak huh. to someone else who worked at Pravda in 1985 or 1986, then you could probably just go upstairs from Gubrev's apartment and find you know, somebody else who worked in a similar department. But I should also say that a lot of these people had moved or had died or didn't want to talk. The same things you encounter in any reporting project. So I probably had a strike rate of like 30% or something. I mean, the number of people that me and Taras, the researcher I worked with in Kiev for 12 years, you know, the number of people we tried to find from this list that we eventually compiled over the years, you know, it was a lot smaller than the number of people we wanted to find in the first place. I would think that it's a challenge. You're going over there and you're asking people as an outsider to share about something that they all must have felt an incredible weight about. And I don't know the Ukrainian mind, the people that are working there, but this must have been something where there was varying degrees. I'm sure some people must have not wanted to talk about it at all because they, they just didn't want to relive it. Was that what you mean by saying some of the people you would have liked to have talked to, you just didn't? Well, you're, I mean, you're right, but it varies very much on the individual and the nature of their experience. I mean, because some of the people whose, whose involvement in the catastrophe was well known you know, and suffered enormously as a result of, for instance, radiation injuries they suffered. You know, they have, those people had often been interviewed many times over the years by different journalists who they'd become accustomed to just kind of turning up on their doorstep and, you know, reviving and reanimating the worst memories of their entire lives, but really just being interested in the most kind of, you know, exploitative and gruesome details of their experience. And then once they'd got them, out of them, then they just leave and then they never hear from them again. So, you know, in, in those cases and the cases of people like that, I had to convince them that that was not my purpose in talking to them. And, and I wanted to, you know, reflect their entire experience and, and tell the stories of their lives in a much more rounded way than people had done before. I did encounter people who, who thought they knew what I wanted when I came to see them, you know, and I had to explain to them this, that this project was different and that part of the purpose of the book is to, is to show the lives of these people in full and to show what it was like to live not only through the, the accident and through these terrible events, but to show what their lives were like before the accident and to show what daily life was like in the Soviet Union. 
So, you know, I, I would find in some cases that people would just begin telling me, you know, the same thing that they talked about half a dozen times before. And I have to say, no, I, I appreciate that this happened to you, but I, but I, I want to know about what happened before. I want to know about your life. Please tell me. And with those people, I think that I, I managed to convince them, you know, of my good intentions, really. And with other people, you know, there were people who never had the opportunity to tell their stories before, and they were, they were more than happy to talk to me and, and because they, they wanted their experience to be widely shared. They wanted people to know what had really happened. I mean, partly because the stories had been so kind of buried in, in disinformation and a lot of myth and sort of folklore about, about things that had happened. That again, you know, a lot of this stuff emerged in the early 90s in this handful of books that was translated into English. And then these books helped propagate, you know, a number of myths that then were just kind of recirculated with every anniversary of the disaster, with every new magazine story or newspaper story that was written about Chernobyl. These apocryphal tales would be retold again and again. Well, I realized that as I was reading Midnight in Chernobyl, I said, let me go into this completely open because, for instance, I've seen those pictures of the Forbidden Zone all contaminated with radiation by the meltdown. But I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't know, and I knew, I guess, that there was a Ferris wheel there, but that didn't really click with me. It, it, if you look at those pictures, there's no people in them. Right. So it was only after reading your book that I said, wow, this was a thriving town, as, as depressing and dark and dramatic as people shoot it today by necessity. You're going to shoot the little doll on the street, right? Every disaster movie has a kid that drops a teddy bear. You know, you, you might as well leave it home if you're a kid fleeing disaster because they always drop it. Right. And those things that you see in those pictures have often been either relocated from other places within the city or brought in by the people who took the pictures. Hmm. I mean, there's so much artifice now in this, this imagery that everybody is familiar with. And, you know, there are so many people who are, who are kind of complicit in it. I happened to visit the, the Chernobyl plant fire station where the, the first responders initially came out from on the 30th anniversary of the accident. And when I went through the front door, you know, the place was full of firefighters who were, who were marking the occasion by meeting up with their old comrades and drinking a lot of vodka. And I got talking to one of the guys who was at the station who works there now, and I was talking to him and he was showing me around the station. And I noticed that when he thought I wasn't looking, he reached up and moved the time on the clock over the front door of the fire station to read 123, which was the time when the explosion took place. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that stuff that goes on. It's like all of the clocks, I think, in Pripyat now say 123, because at some point somebody got up there and changed it because they think it makes a neat photograph. It's forever 123 there, which I guess in a way it is, but it's not the real history. It's not what really happened there. No, no. I mentioned that this was a thriving factory town. It sounds like a lovely place to live. I was very much aware of having grown up in the 70s and 80s of a lot of the myths that I picked up at the time of what life would have been like everywhere. This was a show place, was the nuclear reactor at the time. They slapped Lenin's name on a lot of things, but nothing that they weren't proud of at the time. What will readers learn about this era of stagnation that we read about throughout the book where the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics has this controlled economy and how this system really piles flaw upon flaw, for instance, with the roof of the reactor and all of these dangers. How did you go about digging into that and finding those details? Because 
That really strikes me as something that after the breakup of the Soviet Union and the Ukrainians would have been willing, much more willing to speak about because this is what led to this. This was a contributing factor was that the system itself was so flawed that they couldn't build something that was so advanced and people with people that were really capable of ensuring that it was shepherded to a safe conclusion year after year. The design of the reactor itself was bad, but the principles on which the reactor itself were based were also, um, you know, faulty and unstable and, and not really suitable for building a giant civilian nuclear reactor. And to trace that story back, I read several academic accounts of the history of the Soviet nuclear program, as well as the kind of technical and scientific reports that were put together after the accident. And you began to be able to see when you put all of these things together that there was this kind of through line that went all the way back to the late 1940s and that you could trace the problem with the Chernobyl reactor right the way back to, you know, the first electricity generating reactor that the, that the Soviet Union built in the city called Obninsk outside Moscow in the early 50s. That was more a, a synthesis of available material than it was me kind of, you know, doing detective work in archives because people had separately put together bits of this story. So all I needed to do was to kind of read enough of it to realize that, that you did have this kind of long tail of the disaster that you could trace all the way back to the 50s. I recalled as I was reading Midnight in Chernobyl, something somebody, probably a teacher in high school, I believe was the time they were describing the design and how it was different from the designs the U.S. would have used at the time. Or for instance, the design of the Fukushima nuclear reactor in Japan, which hopefully they learned from Chernobyl and from this disaster. But the evaluation was that the Soviet authorities decided that human life was cheap and concrete was expensive. I love to be corrected and told that I've been carrying around a myth. Is there any truth to that, you think, as far as the design went? Well, I think that presupposes that they expected there to be some kind of disaster, which clearly isn't true because nobody would build a nuclear reactor in the expectation that one day it would explode. <laughs> but no, I mean, certainly I think the history of the Soviet Union shows us that generally human life was regarded as a as a pretty cheap commodity but the truth was that they were just kind of overconfident in the technology the designers of the reactor knew that there were significant problems with it but they hoped that by writing regulations that were specific enough then they could make sure that the people who operated the reactor would never take it to a place where those design faults would become truly problematic but this is the point at which the problems of the era of stagnation and the planned economy come into play. Because at the same time as giving these, these reactor operators these you know, thick books of numerous regulations, which were not explained really, the significance of the regulations and the fact that the reactor could be very dangerous if the regulations were not followed, that wasn't explained in the regulations. Simultaneously with being given these thick books of regulations, you know, these guys were given these ridiculous, almost Kafka-esque work quotas to conform to and plan targets to meet, which were almost impossible under normal circumstances. And as a result of trying to meet these targets, which meant that they would get financial bonuses and the plant would get, you know, accolades as a result, in order to meet them, they had to bend the rules and, and cut corners and stuff. And that was an ordinary part of being in the Soviet workplace. You had to ignore the rules because the rules were kind of, there was an absurd number of them. They told you to do things that you knew you didn't necessarily have to do. 
So you've got this incredibly combustible combination of elements. They've got to follow the rules, but then on the other hand, they've got used to not following the rules. They've got to meet these quotas. They've got to do things quickly. They've got to get things done by absurd deadlines. So everybody cuts corners. And simultaneously, you know, there's this kind of attitude in the workplace where there is no kind of culture of observing safety rules of any kind. And people have just got used to working with machinery, but specifically in this case with nuclear reactors, that where nothing really, there were no, never, really never any terrible consequences when something went wrong. Sure, there were accidents, but nobody ever really got badly hurt. And so they developed this overconfidence. And they came to believe that what their bosses told them, which was that a nuclear reactor could never explode, was absolutely true. Kind of the attitude of the era of stagnation was that they could just carry on as if there was going to be no tomorrow. And ultimately, you know, Chernobyl was tomorrow. And they're incredibly cavalier at times. I definitely sat up in my subway seat while reading Midnight in Chernobyl when I read that the powers that be in the Soviet Union are telling people, well, nuclear power, nuclear you know, radiation is so harmless, you could spread it on bread, they tell the citizens. So Right, exactly. <laughs> it's harmless. But the, the distinction that you've really got to make is that, you know, the engineers who were operating the reactor were extremely well trained. You know, they were aware of the nuclear physics of the reactors. It's not like they've often been represented as these kind of, you know, ignorant fools who didn't understand what they were dealing with. They understood extremely well and were very well trained in the principles of reactor physics. They just weren't told the full implications of the dangers of what they were working with. And the, the guy who specifically told me that thing about radiation is so harmless you can spread it on bread, you know, he was an electrical engineer. So this is the, the other thing is that half the plant or more than half the plant was staffed by guys who were energy workers. They weren't nuclear specialists. So they, they didn't, just didn't understand, in many cases, the dangers of radiation and the reactors they were working with. You had this small elite group of guys who knew exactly what they were doing, but were poorly informed. And then you've got this much larger group of people who were kind of reckless around radiation because they'd just been told it was fine to work with and they didn't know any better. It's something, especially for the Soviet Union, because as I'm reading Midnight in Chernobyl, we're marking 40 years since the Three Mile Island accident, which is the venting of some radioactive steam. There hasn't been anything that's been fallout, for lack of a better word, of that accident. And yet it surprised me to read in your book that the Soviets censored news of that leak. They didn't want to tarnish the image of the peaceful atom, as you write in the book. And in fact, as far as a reactor never melting down, the Soviets had such a meltdown in the 50s, 1957, and they covered that up completely, erased the town from the map. So tell us how their handling of that event impacted what you call this Soviet system of silence 30 years later in 1986, when they have to deal with Chernobyl in what's really a whole different world. For instance, satellites. Uh, they talked to Gorbachev about covering it up, and he says there's satellite right overhead now. The pictures of the meltdown are on President Reagan's desk. So we're not going to be able to deal with it the way we did in 1957. You're right. There, were, there was a whole chain of accidents that went right back to the beginning of the Soviet nuclear power program. But they'd all been successfully covered up. And the, the accident that happened in 57 was actually an explosion inside a radioactive waste storage container, which exploded and launched this huge plume of toxic radionuclides over the Urals. 
but it was so deep inside the Soviet Union that the trace blew, and the trace blew eastwards, so it didn't really escape from the borders of the Soviet Union. So it was relatively easy to keep that secret. And it was a similar case with a lot of these other radioactive accidents that had happened in power plants and in, in military installations over the years, is they'd managed to keep it secret because they'd happened either on a scale or in a location where the radioactivity could be contained within Soviet borders. And what happened with Chernobyl is that it was so clo close to the western borders of the Soviet Union being where it was in northwestern Ukraine, that as soon as the explosion took place, and this plume of radionuclides was lofted into the atmosphere above the station and taken away by these high-altitude winds, that there was no keeping it secret. It arrived in Sweden within 36 hours, and at that point, alarms began to go off at this nuclear power station in Sweden, and that was what brought it to the attention of, of Western governments. And after that, whatever they did, there was no way the Politburo could keep a lid on it. You're enjoying my conversation with Adam Higginbotham, author of Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. You can visit our guest online at adamhigginbotham.com or at HigginbothamA on Twitter. Anne Applebaum, Pulitzer Prize winning author of Gulag and Red Famine, says of the book, quote, Adam Higginbotham's brilliantly well-written Midnight in Chernobyl draws on news sources and original research to illuminate the true story of one of history's greatest technological failures, and along with it, the bewildering reality of everyday life during the final years of the Soviet Union. Adam, those everyday snapshots on whatever the Soviet Union version of a Polaroid camera was is what fascinated me as a reader. It's pictures you're painting with your words, not to sound terribly pretentious, but I really felt like I could go back there and I could I could walk in this idyllic place. As I, it was as close, I guess, to the promised socialist paradise as you might get. You had your job, you had places for your kids to play, you had a sense of purpose. Everybody seemed very happy. And yet in 1986, when Sweden does detect that nuclear plume overhead, here's the new Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. It's early in his efforts at perestroika or openness that we all who grew up in that era are familiar with that term and glasnost. How does he guard his regime against these hardline communists on his left flank who stand ready to pounce on any show of weakness, who would prefer to do things as if it's still the 50s and try somehow to just cover this up and deny, deny, deny? Well, to be honest, it's not entirely clear that Gorbachev's impulses were as pure as we might like to think at this point. I mean, certainly he had aired the concept of glasnost or open government, and talk of perestroika and, and further reform before the accident, but nothing had really been done about it. The interesting thing about Chernobyl in this context is this was the first real test of whether or not he was going to go ahead with this in reality. But he was, as you say, surrounded by these hardliners who wanted to do things the old-fashioned way. And although he insists subsequently that he was all for complete openness about the accident and about telling the public everything about what had happened as soon as it had happened. He says that the reason that they didn't was just that they were not fully informed and they didn't have enough information to share with the public. But 
even if that is true, that is certainly not what they did. And the transcripts of the, the first Politburo meeting on the Monday after the accident, the accident happened in the early hours of Saturday morning, Gorbachev called an emergency Politburo meeting, but apparently regarded it as such an emergency that he waited until Monday to convene it. Mm. You know, the, the transcripts of those meetings do not suggest that he was particularly forceful in insisting on, on sharing this information with as wide an audience as possible. Um, and they, you know, they just, they just issued a three-line statement that didn't even mention a release of radioactivity. And, and it seems that, that you know, he was aware at this point that he was in a sufficiently delicate position with those that surrounded him, that he couldn't be seen to be going too far too quickly. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't until some time later that they, they really turned the corner into pursuing a policy of more openness about what was actually going on. I believe I remember that at the time, too, or maybe in that same discussion in school before we were able to have access to all this when the Soviet Union was still around, but that, that those alarms going off in Sweden, that was really the time when the world knew about it. Otherwise, he was just in the saying about Gorbachev, well, all the Soviet leaders were dying, and Reagan said, that's why I haven't met with them. You know, they keep dying on me. You know, get somebody somebody who will <laughs> survive more than a couple of months, maybe. And so that was that was part of the thing. That was his fir their first reaction wasn't that they had to tell us. It was that they were forced to tell us, us being the rest of the world, what was going on. Absolutely. And, and until the alarms started going off in Sweden, they – they can, and, and indeed, after they went off in Sweden, the Soviet government continued to insist that there were no problems within their borders. Um, it wasn't until late that night that they finally released this statement on Radio Moscow and through TASS, um, admitting that there had been an accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Every Western inquiry that had preceded that was, was just stonewalled. And that's something else that's in Midnight in Chernobyl. We get to see the geopolitics of it. Reagan at the time is in Japan on a summit, as I recall you describe in the book. And he's using, you know, he's seeing everything through this prism that he has of opposing the Soviet system and saying, look how they're covering this up. They're not telling us what's going on. And so this is part of that great chess match in the Cold War where there's very real world consequences. This is what people mean when they say about Reagan that Fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one thing very well. And when you have that worldview, you're able to see the weakness in the Soviet system and counter them, really embarrass them, berate them, push them into saying, well, we're going to have to deal with this in a different way. Because there are some presidents that would have maybe just ignored it, that wouldn't have mentioned that they were having this internal problem. You know, Eisenhower wanted very much to get along with the Soviets. And when that U-2 goes down, he's saying, well, maybe we should just not mention it. Khrushchev wants to get along with him, too. He was ready to do his peace visit to the Soviet Union at the time. So it's very much something that happens in a specific period of time. 1986 is such a perfect time to have set this story if you were writing it as a thriller. And we have real life people and we, we know them well enough because they're still in living memory that it's fantastic to be able to really get into it now and read it through the eyes of people who were there. And I, I felt as a reader that if people who lived through this horror can go back and talk about it and want their story out, well, at least I could do is read Midnight in Chernobyl and know their real story. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that was part of my impulse to write the book in the first place is that, you know, as soon as I began meeting some of these people, I realized that 
you know, there was going to be a limited opportunity to, to tell their stories from their perspective before the whole thing passed into history and they died. You know, and indeed, there were some people that I spoke to who were, whose testimony is in the book who did die during the course of the reporting on the book. And had that happened before I'd reached them, it would have been impossible to do it. It's all lost. Yeah, once we stop recording oral history, uh, Lori Gwen Shapiro, who's written a couple of books, the one I interviewed with her was The Stowaway, about the young man in the, the early part of the century stows away to the first American expedition. They want to cross Antarctica. And she said, you know, I found a cassette tape I had where my mother told me, sit down with your grandmother and interview her. And she said, I did it. And she said, how precious is that tape now that my grandmother has passed on and I still have it? And it always sticks with me. Go and get the first person account from someone. And if you're a journalist, if you're a young person looking to go into journalism, Adam Higginbotham, when you went to those people and said, tell me your story, but I'm not here just to use you. You're going to hear from me again. I, I really want to know what happened. I'm not just using you for a couple quotes. And it reminded me of uh, another author that I interviewed, M. Evelina Galong. And she wrote a book about the Filipino women forced into sex slavery during World War II by the Imperial Japanese. It's called Lola's House. And she said, I met with these women and I, I knew that they'd been let down so many times before. People had come and said they were going to tell their stories, that they would help them, that they would not forget them, and that they would hear from them again. Many of them live in poverty now and they want an apology from the Japanese government that is not forthcoming. And she said, my gosh, I could not betray them again. And I had to get them to open up to me in different ways when they had been let down so many times before. And as I read these people in Midnight in Chernobyl sharing their stories, I could see the same thing. Sometimes people just don't come and ever ask their stories. And when they pass away, we've lost it. We've lost things like knowing that they told them radiation was something that you could spread on toast, which it jumped out at me. Obviously, I wrote a question around it, right? Yeah. It's a story that you couldn't get just by looking at the radiation records or the numbers and things like that. No, and in fact, the the guy who told me that is indeed dead. Oh. I mean, because he was, I think he was probably in his early 70s when I met him. So you record that, and if you're not there to get that line, it's lost. It's just yeah. lost to history. Exactly. And what it could have been is so much worse. You mentioned the fear of the China syndrome from the movie, this idea that how bad a critical reactor can go if there's no way to stop it. What was the worst that could have happened here? What was the ultimate fear once the reactor's melting down of the Soviet authorities? Well, they had the physicists who were, who were there at the scene, you know, were aware of the fact that nothing like this had ever happened before. And they had never even modeled any of these things happening. The difference between the Western approach and the Soviet approach was that after Three Mile Island, nuclear scientists in the West had modeled reactor accidents to the extent that they felt that they had a a reasonable idea of what might happen in the event of a meltdown, because they'd already had a meltdown at Three Mile Island. So they wanted to see what the worst case scenarios were. But the Soviets didn't bother with any of that stuff, because this was beyond what they'd envisaged would be possible in a reactor accident. So then when the, re the reactor in Unit 4 did begin melting down, they had no idea what might happen and could only you know, hypothesize the worst case scenarios and then prepare for those. And so what they initially felt might happen was that the reactor core would melt down through these three stories of sub-reactor spaces and basement rooms and ultimately reach in through the ground into the water table and then pollute the water table beneath the station. 
And this water table led ultimately, you know, was shared by the river Dnieper, which is one of the largest rivers in Europe, and fed to the Black Sea. And on the way, fed drinking water to an enormous part of Ukraine. So one of their major fears was that this nuclear fuel was just going to, you know, permanently contaminate the drinking water for most of Ukraine and ultimately the Black Sea. But before that happened, they had another even greater fear, which was that the part of the safety system for the reactor was these steam suppression pools, which lay directly underneath in the basement of the reactor building itself. And these were sealed metal tanks, very large sealed metal tanks that were part filled with water. And so one theory that they were entertaining was that if this molten nuclear fuel, which is incredibly hot, burned through into one of these tanks and then met the water that was there, it would suddenly all turn into steam, creating this enormous high-pressure steam explosion, which would then totally destroy the already ruined reactor number four and then potentially involve in the explosion reactors three, two, and one, which were all right next door to the fourth reactor. And so it would act like a huge dirty bomb launching an even larger amount of radioactive fallout into the atmosphere and polluting a far larger area than was already contaminated. These were their twin fears of what could happen once the meltdown began. And ultimately, neither of those things happened, but there was a very long period of time, 10 days or so, where they lived in absolute terror that, that one or other of these things was, was going to happen, and that if it did, all of them might die in a fraction of a second. You're saying all of them might die, this dire situation. And as you're explaining this scenario that you go into in detail in Midnight in Chernobyl, I'm thinking, how do these people not just all fall to their knees and scream and never stop screaming? It is really a testament to, we said this is a human disaster, also to that human spirit and what people are willing to sacrifice and do to try to save lives. For instance, you mentioned a term that I remember hearing at the time, and that is the bio-robots. Thinking about the people who had to go in there, there's no way to protect yourself from that much radiation. So who were those people? How did they recruit people, find people that were willing to risk everything to go into this reactor? The bio-robots is a name that was given to the reservists who went up to the roofs of the reactor buildings after the explosion to work at clearing away this extremely radioactive debris that had been thrown there by the explosion. And those are the guys who went up there in lead aprons and goggles with shovels and stretchers to carry the stuff away. How long was the working? They, they couldn't even stand it for very long in a shift, right? Right, minutes or seconds. There were more than 3,000 of those guys. And I don't really know what happened to all of them. But when I went to interview the general who commanded the operation in Moscow, I asked him if he was still in touch with any of these three, three and a half thousand men who over a number of days in late 1986, he sent out onto the roofs. And he just walked over to the safe in the corner of his office and returned with this sheaf of dot matrix printer paper, three quarters of an inch thick. And it had the name and rank of every single one of the men involved in the operation, accompanied by a summary of the material that he had removed from the roof on the amount of time and the weight of it. And he did try and put me in touch with some of them. So I know that they're still alive. In the end, I couldn't, but not because they weren't alive, just because the one guy I remember that I tried to get hold of was extremely sick. But I got almost in touch with several of them. So I know that they are still out there and alive. 
And I think the truth is that except for some of the guys who went in directly into the reactor spaces um, and into the worst contaminated areas inside the reactor block in the immediate aftermath of the explosion, you know, I think that a lot more of those people survived than you might imagine. And indeed, that was one of the things that most surprised me when I began reporting the story as a magazine piece back in 2006, is that I was astonished by how many people were still alive. And then when I began talking to them, and they began describing the things that they'd seen, you know, I, I couldn't believe that they could have seen what they'd seen and still be talking to me hmm. 20 years later. It is really something, because at the time, this is a sign of a great book to me, everybody, is when I lived through the history, and I read that first draft in the newspapers, because I was a news junkie even back then, loved to read, then I pick up a book like Midnight in Chernobyl, and I say, okay, Dean, this is what you've had wrong in your head for 30 years or 20 years, however long it is. And I remembered seeing the graph of the predicted deaths at the time and then what they actually were. And people were shocked and they learned that those are some stories you have in the book about radiation. Because before that, it would have just been theoretical to a large extent. For instance, you said computer simulators and you mentioned in Midnight in Chernobyl that the Soviets didn't have a lot of those. They didn't have ones that every guy was going to be working in the, in the reactor or in the power plant, this whole complex, could have gone on and used. And if you don't have that data, it's hard to be able to produce a viable scenario and then to know how to fight it. Right, right. No, I mean, the, the Soviet technology was extremely backward. So the young reactor operators who were sent to work at Chernobyl had to learn on the job how to operate the reactors because there was no computer simulation technology for them to, to practice on before they actually started the job. I mentioned the China Syndrome, and another movie occurred to me as I'm reading Midnight in Chernobyl, and that's the character of the Deep in Denial Mayor Larry Vaughn in the movie Jaws. He just refuses to close the beach. He's got those suits that look like they came off of a Volkswagen Beetle. He's just the most annoying character, last guy you'd want to be your mayor, the, the, the stereotypical politician that even other politicians don't like. So that's one character that I'm picturing here. I'm wondering who fits that role during the meltdown. And then who are the people who are closer to the hero character of Chief Martin Brody, who sound the alarms that nobody is heeding until it's too late? It's interesting you ask me this question because there is this TV show of the Chernobyl story coming up shortly. So it'll be interesting to see how stereotypically portrayed these people are but because the, the truth is that all the characters are a little bit more complicated than that i mean but the closest that there are to the people that you're talking about i think is boris shabina is the mayor character he is the head of the government commission sent down from moscow to take control of the response to the accident and to launch an investigation into what happened and he is the person who's directly responsible for delaying the evacuation of pripyat the company town which housed all the people who worked at the plant and their families and was only three kilometers away from the plant. And so the explosion happens in the, the small hours of Saturday morning and eventually the people of Pripyat are not finally evacuated until Sunday afternoon. And he refuses initially to countenance an evacuation because it will blow the lid of secrecy off what has happened and it will also kind of expose the Soviet Union to this international humiliation when everybody realizes the true scale of this accident. But, you know, subsequently, Shabina is someone who, who then returns to Chernobyl again and again and spends an enormous amount of time overseeing the liquidation of the catastrophe and ultimately 
you know, succumbs to the radiation that he's been exposed to there and dies quite an early death as a result. So he's not, although in the, in the initial response, he is definitely the, your Jaws mayor character. He's kind of slightly redeemed by his subsequent behavior. And again, the, the person who's closest to the Roy Scheider character, to Chief Brody, is probably Valery Legasov, who is a member of this commission who's sent down from Moscow with Sherbina as the scientific expert on the scene. And he comes from the Kurchatov Institute of Atomic Energy. He is the person who's put in charge of trying to cope with dealing with the immediate consequences of the accident. And so the reactor has caught fire and it goes into meltdown. And Legasov is the person who is directly charged with trying to stop these two things happening. And he arrives at the scene as a committed communist who believes in socialism. He's at the absolute pinnacle of his career. He's the son of a senior party ideologue, so he's ideologically and professionally beyond reproach and a true believer. But what he sees in Chernobyl gradually makes him change his mind, and he realizes that there's something really rotten at the heart of the system. And he ends up subsequently becoming a whistleblower about Soviet science. And he's probably in the long term the, the closest to Brody, but he, he is also a more complex character and is not a kind of clear-cut hero in the Roy Scheider mold, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, just using the movie to try to illustrate some of those things and get an idea and look at the people and see, because nothing is ever going to be the same as a movie, right? And this is not the same as, as having a shark. That could get a couple of people there in the water. Eventually, <laughs> people will get out, right? But as you were speaking about it, you mentioned the Soviet system, which we've mentioned a few times. And it occurs to me that when we talk about a system, we hear people say, work the system. Time of recording this, the New York Islanders, for instance, are down two games to none to the Carolina Hurricanes in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And they're saying we have to stick to our system. By the time people listen to this, they all know whether that worked or not. But that's common in sports. You say, keep doing what got us here, right? When you're on a team, whether it's a government team, whether it's the military, you back up to your training to what's familiar. And so as these communists are saying, hey, we're going to throw you out of the party if you don't do that. They're throwing up bluster as if it's a wall of lead and as if the bluster itself can stop radiation. But this has always worked for them before. So this is their first go-to thing, is if you threaten somebody, they're, they're going to do what you want. And then it's up to you as a scientist or something to say, as uh, Scotty used to say in Star Trek, I, I can't change the laws of physics. You know, this right. is a meltdown. You can't sanction it. You can't send Chernobyl up to the gulag in Siberia. You have to deal with the reality here. And they didn't have the tools to do that. And it was a lot of people that were able to get their families out, got them out, and then later people start to realize, well, that exposes this idea that the whole system is equal. In fact, you invoke Animal Farm, George Orwell, and say that people learn that the Soviet system promises equality, but some proved more equal than others. For instance, there's the, the rain starts going towards Moscow, going to ruin the May Day parade. So they go up and seed the clouds like they did in the book Howl's Storm that I interviewed Jim Leake about, and I had tweeted you something about that. And sure, that's great for Moscow and May Day, but it ends up raining all over farmland. So it, this really does give us an insight into the dissolution of the Soviet Union, into the collapse what do you hope readers will learn about that part of the book as they read Midnight in Chernobyl? Well, I think that the accident played a role in three different ways, probably, in the 
dissolution of the Soviet Union. First of all, the, the financial and physical cost of the accident was extremely high. Although, you know, financially as a, as a proportion of the Soviet GDP, ultimately it may not have been that great. It, you know, the accident took place at a time when the economy was already buckling under the strain of foreign wars and economic reversals and a collapse in the price of oil. And, you know, they could ill afford any further costs of that scale. And the other thing that happened that I think was more significant than that was that the effect it had on Mikhail Gorbachev's state of mind. Because as I said before, you know, he was approaching the concept of glasnost very slowly before the accident happened. But it was only after the accident that he really began to realize exactly how rotten the system he'd inherited was. And that he came to believe that if he was going to save the Soviet Union, he needed to get on with these reforms and plunge into them much more quickly and much more deeply than he'd been thinking of before. And then as he embarked on these financial reforms, they were carried out so speedily and with such force that they ended up being botched. And it was these economic reforms really that led to the unraveling of the Soviet Union ultimately. It was really kind of Gorbachev's fault for going too quickly and too deeply into this economic liberalization that he hoped would save the state. But the other particularly important thing that happened was that, that once Glasnost did start to get going and they did start a lot more news reporting about what had happened, then the Soviet people suddenly became aware, as Gorbachev himself had, of how many lies they'd been told about the state and about the nuclear state and about the nature of the accident. And I think after the accident, it was impossible for even the, the most hardcore communists to really trust the state apparatus ever again. And that, I think, opened up fissures in Soviet society that could never be closed. We have time for one final question, and it's one that I asked throughout Midnight in Chernobyl as I reevaluated my own view of this disaster. What do you hope your readers will take away from Midnight in Chernobyl about the safety of nuclear power, specifically technology in general, but also about being able to keep our eyes open, not just following the system, whatever system we're in, whether it's at work, whether it's even on something as small as, as a hockey team or any kind of endeavor. If we see something that's going wrong, that's a potential danger and people above us are ignoring us, telling us don't worry about it. What do you hope that people will absorb into their own life, like some positive radiation out of your book? I think that the biggest lesson to draw from what happened is one of the problems of technological hubris. You mentioned the Titanic earlier, you know, and I see it as being very similar to the story of the Titanic in the sense that, you know, the operators of the White Star Line insisted that this was an unsinkable ship and therefore they cut corners on the number of lifeboats and, and the ship went extremely fast. And, you know, a similar thing happened with the, the reactor in Chernobyl, which was that the leaders of the nuclear industry in the Soviet Union managed to convince everybody that this was one of the most reliable and, and the safest nuclear reactors in the world. And they convinced even the people that worked at the plant of that. And ultimately, it was this overconfidence that helped lay the path to the accident. And I think that that overconfidence in technologies can be very seductive. And you can see it now with artificial intelligence and social media and Facebook and all of these things in which we're getting into ever deeper water because it's been happening without us really paying much attention to it. I think that's the overall lesson that I would take away from the Chernobyl story. 
Well, Adam Higginbotham, author of Midnight in Chernobyl, I'm not ashamed to say that I enjoyed this book. I really did. People all have a day that their life's going to come to an end. And so reading about something like this where they lose them prematurely, many of them commit great acts of bravery. You captured their story for us. As I said before, at least we can do is read it. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and for bringing us safely inside the 20th century's greatest nuclear disaster. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I really do hope people will pick it up, give it a chance, experience all these human stories, find out what we got wrong on our side of the Iron Curtain when the nuclear reactor melted down, if you were old enough to have lived through it, if you were in high school like I were or older, because it's really something that we've only hinted at before, and it is an incredible sweeping story. Thanks so much. Again, the book is Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate via the Amazon banner at the top of our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Adam Higginbotham for joining us and for shining a flashlight on the radioactive legacy of the Soviet Union, a legacy that will be smoldering in Ukraine long, long after we're all gone. The subhead of Midnight in Chernobyl is the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster, but it needs be untold and unknown no longer. Visit adamhigginbotham.com for more on today's guest or follow him at HigginbothamA on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, Instagram, or facebook.com slash history author. And I mentioned a couple of other interviews. You can always find those in our archives. If you're ever driving someplace and you want something to listen to, please remember to have a look back at the shows we've done before. We're pushing 200 interviews now by me and every now and then a guest host. And we'd sure love it if we could share some of those great authors with you. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same on the east. Sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in 